HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, a podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Sarah Moulton. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Sarah about being mentored by Julia, revisiting the French chef, and we'll hear Sarah's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Now we're all still coping with the global pandemic, whether it's lockdown stress, health calamities, or isolation. Our hearts and thoughts go out to all those impacted, the frontline workers giving it their all, and those in the hospitality industry who've been so gravely affected. At the foundation, we're delighted Julia continues to offer solace to so many. Beyond the ray of light that Julia's exuberant personality still brings, Julia had a lot to teach. Looking at all the Instagram boasts of homemade sourdough loaves, it's hard not to think of Julia as a sage, saying so long ago, cooking is important, both as a life skill and as an outlet for joy. One thing Julia would have found very difficult right now is the isolation. An uber extrovert, Julia not only loved being with other people, cooking to her, ideally, was a team sport, eating too. She was a collaborator at heart, as that's exactly how Mastering the Art of French Cooking was birthed. Naturally, as you climb the ladder of success, being a collaborator means working with the next generation. There were many young cooks and aspiring writers who worked with and for Julia, and were very much encouraged by her to pursue their own culinary journeys. Joining us today is a true protege of Julia's, Sarah Moulton. A trained chef, Sarah was one of the Food Network's earliest breakout stars, beginning on Cooking Live, 
and following the other series, eventually totaling more than, yes, this is the correct number, 1,500 episodes of television. Like Julia, Sarah's focus has been very much as a TV cooking teacher, trying to help home cooks up their game. One of her training grounds was on the set during Julia's stint on ABC's Good Morning America. As a food writer, Sarah's been a columnist for the Associated Press, Washington Post, and the University of Michigan, and is the author of several cookbooks, including Sarah Moulton's Home Cooking 101, How to Make Everything Taste Better. Her current PBS television series is in its ninth season. Sarah's Weeknight Meals airs now, and she's also co-hosts a weekly segment on Milk Street Radio with Christopher Kimball. She joins us today to talk about having Julia as your mentor and the new PBS special series, Dishing with Julia Child, in which she appears. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks, Todd. This is wonderful to be talking to you. Always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So how are you doing and how are you coping? Well, I, we're really fine. I feel very blessed and lucky because uh, we're in New York City. Uh, we live downtown, and my kids are both here, too, and we're all fine. Uh, I believe my daughter and her crew, they're all up in Harlem. She's with her boyfriend and his brother and their the brother's girlfriend, and all of them have had the virus in, in different ways. Not terribly, uh, some more sick than others, but they've been sort of stuck in a small apartment, four of them, four <laughs> young adults, and that's two Two out, or three out of four of them are working at home, so that's a little stressful. But she's fine. Uh, my son is in deep Brooklyn, like all good young people, with his girlfriend, and he's still working. He teaches chess in schools, and he's doing it remotely uh, with a program that works with the public school system. And they've, they're fostering a, a little doggy, and I feel like a grandmother. All I want to hear about is the little doggy. But anyway, they're fine. And then uh, Bill and I, my husband and I, are in this, uh, we have a nice big apartment, and my office is at one end and his office is at the other and we meet for meals, and mostly it's working real well. Um, we take a long walk every day with masks on and um, eat wonderful meals. I'm cooking more and baking more, like I think most of the rest of the world. So we're doing well. Uh, so we're holding up. I mean, it's scary as can be. It's scary to see New York so empty. Uh, the homeless people are understandably very desperate, and it's just depressing. And But we're carrying on and trying to be positive. Well, that is a positive report, considering that New York has been a relative epicenter, and almost everyone I know and work with who is New York-based has, has sort of fled the city. So you guys are, are carrying the torch as the intrepid family. Well, we have more to do here. My husband has a lot of projects that he's working on, and I have started doing watercolors, so I've sort of set up my office partially as a painting studio, uh, so that's fun. And then I have, you know, all those projects. I think another thing that's been happening around the globe for people who are lucky enough to be able to stay at home is cleaning out files and getting rid of stuff and organizing your life as a way of trying to get a grip on anything. So I'm looking forward to doing some of that, too. Well, it sounds like you've been able to sort of reset and do some things that you enjoy doing that you don't like. So what did you give up that you were because I'm still doing most of my regular jobs. So and I've worked remotely already. So not a huge amount in that respect has changed for me. But what were you meant to be doing or was on your schedule versus what you are doing? Well, I had a couple of appearances, actually, some of them for public television. Um, and also we were 
planning and are still planning, but I sincerely doubt it's going to hope happen to record season start recording season 10 of my show in the fall. But um, <laughs> my major sponsor who I adore is a cruise line. So I somehow don't think that's going to happen. Uh, either the taping or perhaps even the funding because I they're in quite, you know, flux there. So that should have been happening. But frankly, I was winding down a bit anyway. I've been trying to do it for a couple of years and stuff keeps happening. My dad died last year, which uh, it was a good ending. Uh, it was quick. He went out with a bang of glory. He went on a fishing trip and caught the biggest fish the week before. But that that involved, uh, in the lead up to that, uh, spending a lot of time in Cambridge with him. He was fine, but I wanted to see him. And then uh, in the fall, selling his apartment. So I kept pushing off all these things that coronavirus has now put in my lap, you know, all these fun projects at home. So I've kept up with the social media. That is that much I've done trying to post happy things, you know, or encouraging things or culinary things. But other than that, I've, I was planning on slowing down anyway, frankly. Well, I wanted to ask you, and we'll talk about this more in the show, of, of your close relationship, both personal and professional, with Julia. And I was really curious, because I've been thinking about it, but I can't say that I've arrived at any clear hypothesis or um, feeling. But what do you think Julia's response to this kind of pandemic would have been? I think she would be doing Zoom cooking dinner parties, you know, uh, you're absolutely right when you said in your introduction that, that she was a very social person. You know, when I worked with her in Cambridge in the late 70s, you know, she had regular dinner parties at her house. And we would all be there just cooking together. And she'd turn to us in the middle of the whole thing and say, aren't we having so much fun? Um, and, you know, she, she lived for that. She loved that. It wasn't like she wasn't cooking all day and writing cookbooks, but then at night, you know, I mean, on weekends or every so often, she'd want to have a dinner party. So I imagine she would have gotten, figured out the technology, uh, and be doing exactly that probably once a week at least. Yeah. I think that's one thing that often gets overlooked in the the focus on, you know, cooking from mastering and Julia's recipes and, you know, following along with her, which is all great and wonderful, but that Julia had this really strong belief, right, in the social aspects of cooking, not just the technique or the skill. Oh, and uh, yeah. No, what were you going to say about that? No, I was just going to say that it was French culture, you know, it was something she learned I mean, obviously, she didn't grow up that way, you know, in California. The, the, you know, the food that she was served, I think they had cooks, uh, were, was terrible, and nobody really cared about eating. And it wasn't really till she met Paul, and, you know, he was such a Renaissance man. And then when, you know, they got married and moved to France, that she truly understood the whole, you know, culture of dining, not just, you know, eating to keep yourself alive. And so, yeah, that was a very important uh, part of the whole deal to her. And and do you think there's something in Julia's model, both as a professional and just sort of how she conducted herself in front of and behind the camera, which was quite similar, in how we can all 
approach coping with the pandemic and and the the lockdowns? Well, yes, absolutely, because I think we've all been forced to slow down. Um, and then again, I'm I'm referring to us privileged people who are not, you know. In, on the front lines every day. And there, and there's so many different people on the front front lines, not just the doctors, but, you know, delivery people, people who work in factories, people who work in grocery stores, um, you know, they don't have what we're talking about right here, which is that, you know, for those of us who are spending more time at home, um, I think we're really appreciating how things slow down. And, you know, I discovered this last year when my dad was on hospice. He was on hospice for about 10 days before he died. And my sister, brother, and I were all there with various spouses at various times and children. And every day, what kept us going besides just trying to, you know, keep daddy happy was dinner. It was so exciting. And not just making a nice, you know, we didn't just get takeout, but making a nice meal and sitting down and really talking. And I think I'm hoping and I'm believing that people are definitely cooking more and definitely sitting down and really listening to each other more and taking time. And I think that's fantastic. No, and and I hope, too, that people look back at this time and that, that actually, in a funny way, despite the isolation with technology especially, the, it, it, it was a time of deepening connections, particularly with the people in your life you value the most. But it's interesting to me that you say slow down in the context of Julia, because I always think of Julia as someone who was always on the go, always had to be doing something. But then I, I see your point that she did have these sort of baked in slowdowns to the rhythm of her day. So how do you contrast the fact that Julia actually was a go, go, go person and this sort of slow down idea? I, I, I don't really know what to say, except that she certainly knew how to enjoy life. Uh, at every level. And, you know, unless you slow down, you really can't, you're not, you're not going to see it or appreciate it or taste it even. Um, You know, she was a very sensual person. You know, you just think about those, uh, (laughs) those fun Valentine's Day cards that she and Paul used to send out every year with the two of them in a bathtub or something. I mean, uh, you know, again, I think it's it's somewhat the Paul influence, but Julia definitely embraced it. Yeah, I think that, well, I, actually, what I thought you might talk about, right, when you worked with her at Good Morning America, wasn't there an aspect of, maybe this is the wrong context, where even though she put a lot of time and energy into when she was on television between the preparation and also changing her mind and putting people through their paces, she more so than other people did not just have like a slice of pizza on the way home. There were these hard work, then concentrated breaks over a meal, right? Oh, gosh, yes. No, we'd go across the street to Cafe des Artistes and have a full on meal with, you know, wine. I mean, of course, you know, that's what you do. You know, absolutely. Uh, Would, you know, that's, uh, that's, she insisted on that. And that is the story I'm going to share with you at the end. Uh, uh, just I'm how st- much she is stealing your thunder early. Yes. Um, yes. But I was going to say, is it maybe that was her secret that she had that, you know, go, 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 and then, you know, downtime and then back again. And it was that rhythm of taking those 
if you will, life-sustaining breaks. Well, you know, what's interesting is my husband, uh, when I was talking to him about how I, I was going to do this with you today, this radio, he said, you know, you got to talk about how Julia was truly, was actually not a foodie in the sense that we think of foodies. My my husband, uh, Julia, as you know, I'm sure, loved men. Uh, mm. She loved women, too, and she was a terrific mentor, but she loved men, and she was a terrible flirt. And, um, you know, all the way to the end, uh, ask Stephanie Hirsch, her assistant. At any rate, she loved, when we'd all go out to dinner, she loved sitting next to Bill, and she'd look at him and she'd say, tell me, have you seen any good movies recently? You know, and they'd have to talk about that or about books. Uh, she was, she'd get bored with the conversation. Everybody, of course, was trying to impress her and say something, you know, interesting about food or what they discovered or some new technique. And, you know, she, she, enough already. She wanted to talk about life. And that was certainly true also. You know, whenever she did a book signing, the line would go so slowly because people would go up for her to sign their book and she'd want to know all about them. And she was sincerely interested and did remember. Um, you know, I remember when. I had my first child, Ruthie, who's now 33. Yikes! How did that happen? And Julia and Paul came to vi visit us at our apartment in New York, and we were it was a four-floor walk-up in a brownstone on 18th Street, and they come huffing and puffing up the stairs, and we hand them the baby. <laughs> it's sort of funny, because I, I think, I can't remember which one. It's Paul holding the baby. He looks like a deer caught in the headlights. He has no idea what to do with it. But our young um, babysitter who helped us out, who was 16 at the time, was there. And Julia started asking Jamie all about Jamie in a way that probably most people, grown-ups, you know, did not ask Jamie. Uh, just because, you, you know, a lot of people don't take uh, young people seriously. And it was astounding. Uh, it was lovely. Uh, I didn't blame them for not knowing what to do with children. They'd never had children, <laughs> you know. But uh, that was Julia. She was very, very well-rounded. Um, and she was able to keep track of many different things and, and keep up with the latest book um, and, or the latest movie and discuss politics and get involved. No, I'm so glad you shared that because I think that that's so true and often gets lost in the conversation. And you bring you back so many memories for me of my time with Julia because we always talked about movies. She certainly never asked me about food. I was not a food industry person at that point in time anyway, so why would she? But I'll also never forget the first time I met her in person, which I'm pretty sure was in Santa Barbara. And she opened the door and she said, oh, hello, Todd. It's so nice to meet you. And I was like, all, I, I don't know what she said after that, because all I kept thinking was, Julia Child knows my name. This is so <laughs> weird. And like that must have gone. I was like pay, not paying attention to anything else. And like, what's quite funny is I think that's so emblematic of what you just described of how she was genuinely interested in every single person. Although my wife's always said whenever I tell that story, she's like, Stephanie just told you or told her your name before you were coming. That's why she knew. And I'm like, well, don't burst the bubble. It's well, no, but here's the here's the other thing about it. Uh, she also knew that it was important to know the person's name. And I'm sure by the time she was done talking to you, she remembered everything about you uh, because she did listen. She did care. Um, you know, she never wanted to talk about herself, ever. 
So no, I think that's true, and I think even even handlers tell famous people someone's name, it doesn't mean they retain it at all. There was a difference in, in exactly. I don't think it lessens it at all. I was right. just tr- trying to be put in my place. <laughs> your <probably>. wife, that's <laughs> terrible. Let her, let her. You should be allowed to have your little fantasies. Oh, exactly. Dear. Yeah. So, so do you think at this point, and I kind of maybe I stole this thunder too in the intro, but do you, what do you think about? I've been thinking a lot. I've, Julia's been proved right, hasn't she? That knowing how to cook and how to enjoy cooking is really critical, even in this modern delivery age. I feel I keep thinking about that in what's going on. That she was there in 1963, saying, "Wait a second, what's your take on that?" Oh, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, what's fascinating about right now is there's so many people who are cooking for the first time ever. And, you know, I want to venture that perhaps they're enjoying it. A perfect example is my daughter, Ruthie, who, although she makes a mean vinaigrette, has never really cooked or want, you know, she's tried, but it's too much work. You know, I don't blame anybody who doesn't like to cook. I understand. All I care is that you like to eat. Uh, frankly. My my son is a terrific cook, but Ruthie, not so much. However, there she is stuck in this apartment with three other young adults. And, um, you know, some of the rest, two of them, others cook. But suddenly I suggested she get Blue Apron, you know, that delivery service, because it's one way to make sure you actually get food three times a week, because sometimes it's a little dicey here. And until they were all sure they had the coronavirus, they were being very careful about going into supermarkets. I mean, you have to, but maybe you want to try to avoid them. So she started getting Blue Apron, and then you have to cook it, because there it is. It's going to go bad. And it's so funny. The first time she cooked... excuse me, the first time she cooked, she was so stressed out, I was on the phone with her all the way through it. I cooked with her via phone. Mm -hmm. And then subsequent times, she called me less. She would still call me to ask questions. And then recently, she's done it all by herself. And I always say to her the next day, so how did dinner come out last night? Um, Mom, it was pretty good. It was very good. So it's it's been exciting, and I know she's not alone, and I think that's terrific. It, this has given people the opportunity, also people say who don't bake, to bake or to try things they've never tried before. I made gougere the other day. I haven't made them since cooking school. For those people who don't know, gougere are cheese puffs, these fantastic French melty cheese things that are yummy. It's pot with cheese in it. And I hadn't done that in years, and it was so much fun to revisit it. That's so funny. We we well we I stood in the other room, um, exhausted. But um, my uh, wife, wife Emma, her mom is Ann Willen, and uh, and and actually one of our friends who knows who's our friend but knows Ann Willen had already roped her into giving a Gougere class virtually. So oh wow, her another friend and and Emma who was just getting competitive who hadn't had the time because she works full time. To make gougere, and I think the trick about gougere is they're not, they're basically some, they're no good if you make them ahead, essentially. So you have to make them at the minute. And so they, we had gougere and Emma was trying to have the best ones because they're like an incredibly simple set of ingredients, but I think they're quite technically skilled to get them to come out right. I agree. I think that the initial phase, so for people who don't know, you take, um, 
it's water and butter and salt and you bring it I think that's the ingredient you bring it to a boil and then you add the flour and you have to stir like crazy quickly and you can't really use a whisk you know they say maybe a sturdy whisk which is what I resorted to because it all gets stuck in the whisk and actually that worked better for me because usually they say use a wooden spoon and then you have little lumps of flour as you stir frantically over, you know, over the fire. And that doesn't bode well. I don't, I didn't like that at all. But I, Todd, I have some really good news for you. I followed Dory Greenspan's uh, recipe from the her year in France. And oh, from is that her latest book? Is it that one? No, it's not her latest. She's that woman is so prolific. I don't know how the heck she does it. I think it's three or four years old. But anyway, I thought Dory's a great baker, so I'm going to check her recipe out. So I made it. But one of the things she she said, Todd, this is so exciting, in and it worked. Uh, is that after you make the pot of shoe and you sort of scoop it onto sheet pans. You can freeze it raw, like you do cookie dough when you've scooped it into cookie, and then put it in a Ziploc bag or whatever, and then bake it off from the frozen state. I did it. It works. I have to tell you, they were every bit as good as the ones I baked right off the first time. But unlike cookie dough, right, you have to you you need to form it into the individual gougere, right? Because you right, can't right exactly. Oh, you can do that with cookie dough too. You can scoop. No, it no, but cookie amounts. dough, I think you can freeze it, defrost it, and then cut it. I think with shoe pastry, you wouldn't be able to do that. You'd have to make the individual. Oh, absolutely, some. yeah. But it makes sense. So, like for example, tonight, actually, we're going to have some. Um, I'm going to pop four into the oven for you know why time you know for cocktail hour <laughs> so and and uh, for those well maybe you'll have to do a little ig live or something little um a demo for people so. well well i already did i'm not the best gougere maker so i would just love to share this message with them and maybe i will actually i'll show the finished product or maybe you could get dory on and you could do a little like um cook-off on yeah on well a- no i'm not competing with dory <laughs> greenspan when it comes to baking and eh, eh, no way jose uh-uh. Fair enough. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Chef Sarah Moulton to talk about the new PBS series, Dishing with Julia Child. Stay with us. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come. Welcome back. We're talking to chef and Julia Child protege, Sarah Moulton, about revisiting the French chef in the recent PBS special series, Dishing with Julia Child. So PBS created a new program to promote the expanding availability of the original The French Chef on streaming services. So they gathered many well-known chefs, including Sarah, 
Julia Child Award recipients Jose Andres and Jacques Pepin and Julia Child Award juror Carla Hall, among several others, and to take a look back at Julia Child's groundbreaking series. So the chefs were filmed mostly in pairs, watching and commenting on the original French Chef episodes. So Sarah, what, what was that experience like for you? It was so much fun for a bunch of reasons. First of all, I got paired up with Carla Hall. I took and I've met her several times and I knew I liked her because she's just friendly. She's one of those people who's very famous, became famous pretty quickly, and yet she didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Carla still Carla. Carla, you know, like Julia. She's just a yeah, really nice person. She's the person. same in person as off camera. And she's, she's very the... funny and I just really like her. But I didn't know her. And I got paired up with her and I took a train to Washington, D.C., where we recorded um, us watching these two episodes. And we, I was so thrilled, got to watch, well, two. One was Boeuf Bourguignon and the other one was Pan to Me. And Boeuf Bourguignon was the first one Julia for, ever recorded for the French chef. So it's a full half an hour. You know, of course, there's ads, but we didn't see them, but we just saw the programming. Well, not of and, course there are ads. It's public television, Sarah. There are no ads. What am I saying? Of course there are no ads. What <laughs> yeah. am I saying? I know that. I do know that. It's at the top and the tail, meaning we watched, you know, obviously we didn't watch the ads. Um, any rate, uh, it was fascinating because it's the first one she ever did. And you can just see what's, you know, I could imagine what was going on in her mind. Um, first of all, she did it with no edits, no stops, nothing. She gave an enormous amount of information, not just about the recipe, about little tips along the way. Carla and I both agreed that she showed this way to cut up mushroom stems that had never occurred to us before. Uh, that made them into the same size as the mushroom caps that she was cutting up to throw into the recipe. Uh, we were both astonished, I mean, me in particular, that she didn't smile for the first half. Because, <laughs> you know, she was very good at that. You know, that was one of her trademark. And she taught me how to smile. But you could just see that in her brain, she's like, okay, what do I have to say first, second, third? You know, I imagine that Paul was probably there holding up notes. Uh, half the time, she's not looking at the right camera. <laughs> yeah, and um, she, but we were both really impressed by her mise en place and how well it worked. You know, she would just pull up things and then lose things. She was very good as clear, clearing as she went. Some of the things that she did, we didn't agree with, but I imagine it's because she really didn't have time to do it any differently. So she puts these big chunks of meat in there. Of course, she talks about what kind of meat you should use. And of course, all the meat on the counter looked about the same, which was also something sort of funny. You know, Julie would do these things and you'd be like, really? But at any rate, so she put these chunks of meat into the pan. And then she says, and you should keep turning it. And Carla and I were like, what? No way, Jose. You're supposed to let it, you know, get browned. So the same things struck us, you know, at the same time, both the positive and the negative that she was doing. You know, I imagine there was also some people under the counter passing her things because we know that that was true in the beginning, you know, that uh, somebody would hand her whatever she needed at whatever moment. And we loved some of the terminology. I forget what she cost, called a dishwashing machine but or a washing machine. She had some antiquated way of describing it. But then 
she got to the finish line and you could see her mood lightening up as she got there. You know, we, we could see that she was ready to do a victory lap. She was just about there, you know, yay. And she started smiling more. And then she gets to the final table with, the, you know, which was signature. You know, there's the finished dish. The table is set for dinner, setting a good example. And there's the wine. And she talks about the wine. And it was, we were just both floored that anybody could do that with no formal media training and just go through it the very first time and pack in. It was dense with information. It was ridiculous. The Pandemy one was also really fun, but I have to say what really struck me was watching the first one ever. I just couldn't believe it, nor could Carla. Well, and that, I think the the slight thing that you're assuming is that uh, everybody knows that, well, as I said in the intro, you've done so much television and Carla's done quite a lot too. So you were both looking at it, I think, through wearing several hats at the same time as a trained cooking professional, you as someone who worked with Julia, and then also as two people who've done modern television, thinking about the contrast between the two. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking about it from every level and, and also from what the heck was going on in her mind when she was doing this. How did she manage to do that? You know, it, it was so much information. I'm sure Paul was there with the, with the checklist. I'm sure he was holding something up. Um, yeah, I no, of course. But I mean, that's true in every program. I think in the episode with uh, uh, Jose Andres and Eric Repair, they're both talking about also being veterans of food television, particularly Eric, and saying, oh, my God, ha- we, we can barely do it when we have multiple takes and the stamina and all of that. They were just in awe of. Yeah, the stamina. Oh boy, did she have stamina? Yeah, yikes! It was well, great. I also, I also think the other thing that I think you can see when you watch these episodes, the enthusiasm that um, you know you and Carla have in watching it, is also that something that is essentially very old. You're not just talking about like dated television, like Martha Stewart twenty years ago. You're talking about you know almost fifty years ago. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And that it's still so compelling. And because I find for work, I have to look at certain things in for the foundation and look at the, the and you end up just falling into the episode. You do. And you know, one of the things that I discovered, uh, when I was doing TV for the Food Network, um, we, uh, we were, rec- I had a live show, a live call in show. And September 11th happened, and the Food Network decided to suspend all programming. Um, and you know all programming, not just mine that was live, all programming. And so for I don't know how many days, four or five days, they just put up a message. You know our our, our you know prayers and thoughts go out to all of you. And but people started calling. It was more calling than emailing because that was early days. It was two thousand and one, um, and saying, "Oh no, we want our food network. We want our food network. Please put it back on." So we resumed programming. And um, we had to be very careful about what we did because we needed to be appropriate to the time. So we did comfort food. We tried to cover what were the chefs doing down, you know, near, you know, ground zero and uh, just just totally be soothing. And we got a lot of emails and calls saying thank you. And that's the thing about food. It's so unifying. It's so calming. It's so centering. Uh, it's so important, uh, and it's not political. And that's what Julia did. So I think that, you know, I don't think 
the people who produced this dishing with Julia had any idea what a brilliant idea this was to to do this right now because people really need it. Uh, when I've promoted it, which I've done a couple of times, this new series, um, people are like, yeah, wow, I love that. But even if they didn't watch Dish- Dishing with Julia, which is us watching Julia, it's like a little bit removed. Uh, if they're just watching straight up Julia, it's very comforting. It's so much fun. No, and that we found that very gratifying, that even after so long, it can provide a kind of comfort and 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 pleasure she's she's pretty eternal she really is she's the gift that keeps on giving that that's a perfect way of saying it so out of that i I wanted to ask you because you know you've been very open about you know julia being your mentor and you're not the only one but there's a lot of parallels and and you had quite a long kind of run of working together and staying in touch so as a julia mentee what does it feel like is that alive and well, do you think, in the food world? Has that been your experience? Is it still that collaborative mentor-mentee, or has that been somehow on the wane? Well, I can only speak from my own experience, what I'm up to, and it's one of my favorite things to do because it's, you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore, and it's so nice to hang out with young people and see what they're doing and see what they're thinking and see what their aspirations are. So I have found quite a, I have quite a few protégés. I just, and I love collecting new ones. Um, I just find it so gratifying, and uh, they're, it's it's lovely. I belong to, um, two women's culinary groups, Les Dames des Cafiers and also the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. And I'd say it's very alive and well in both of them, particularly the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, which is a younger group, um, and anybody can join. Les Dames, you have to sort of be accomplished in order to join, so it doesn't quite lend itself to the same mentorship situation. No, I think it's very much alive and well. And I would say also my husband works... In the music industry, he's a writer, he was a critic, he was um, a publicist, uh, mainly in uh, rap, you know, hip-hop world, and he does an awful lot of mentoring also, uh, and he really enjoys it as well for the same reason. And I think that's why Julia liked hanging out with us young people. When we were all in Cambridge, there was a whole bunch of us, you know, not even just the people who worked with her, but young people that she'd met, you know, in at culinary events and... Um, she just loved being around young people. No, that's a great point of the side benefit that it, it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street in terms of what both parties get out of the relationships. Yeah, that is absolutely, absolutely true. Well, that's a great segue to the, the other question. Just I was thinking about when in, in prepping for the show and looking back at your bio and where you started, and you've sort of done almost every aspect of the food world and were more you know, in restaurants and professionally trained than Julia ever was. And then thinking about, you know, we're in conversation with the different uh, cooking schools we have uh, funded scholarships at and the sort of really tough situation that they are in curriculum-wise and then future-wise and looking at how the hospitality industry has really been devastated. Like when these young people speak to you or you meet someone who's just graduating from the CIA and looking for their future, like what what do you say to them or what's your outlook of what should they do right now? Todd, I wish I had an answer. I have not talked to any of those people recently. Um, 
just because it's all so relatively new. Um, you know, recently I was mentoring a woman who worked at a wonderful restaurant in New York called Del Posto. Uh, and she was working her way up, but she was just exhausted like most people are, you know, young, you know, it's, it's 80 hours and she wanted to try something else. So I was advising her about what that something else might be. And it looks like it might be food styling. Uh, so we'll see where that goes with her, but I have no idea. I really, I, I have no answers. It's so baffling. What's going to be the new model? Um, is it all going to be takeout? Uh, it, which we know is not sustainable for the restaurant industry. And with, you know, cutting down your, your clientele to 25% of the volume you used to have, it's not going to work either. Um, so I'm I'm looking to people like, you know, Danny Meyer or Tom Colicchio or, you know, Jose Andres, who, God, what a hero is he. I just adore that man to come up with some answers because I'm sure they're thinking about it 24-7. I just don't have an answer. And do you not do you not remember a shock as great as this in in your entire career? Well, it depends on how you, you mean in terms of how it impacted my career. I would say that September 11th was a horrible shock. And also because I was in New York and because I lived downtown. Mm. So we were very aware of it. Um, no, I, I can't think of any other shock. I mean, even the thing that happened, you know, the recession in 2008, uh, certainly it impacted people in a huge way. But unfortunately, this is bigger much bigger. Um, and you were, you were talking before about the slowing down kind of model or enforced slowing down that it's made for, for those people who are not on the front lines um, or in essential services. So for you, we talked a little bit about your plan had been that you'd be filming season 10 of your show. Have you, do you feel that your thinking is already evolving about what you would do next? Or is it still in a little bit of a, well, it's too soon to say? Well, here's the thing about me, Todd. I really was waiting to be semi-employed, semi-retired. So if my guess is if we don't get the money for season 10, then I'm probably not going to be recording and shooting another season um, because or we just kick the can down the road which we've done before um, but it's there's so many people who need money right now and there's nobody with any money <laughs> you know it's because everybody's suffering just like it's, we recorded my very first season in 2007 and then in 2008 we couldn't find anybody to sponsor for season two so it took us till 2010, well, I think we recorded in 2009, and it wasn't up again until 2010. Um, so the first season aired in 2007, and the second season aired in 2010. And uh, that could happen again, it, you know, but what happened was nobody would even pick up the phone to talk to you about being a sponsor for your show. So I just can't imagine that's that's going to happen. Um, uh, so that's not changing. I, you know, I write for the University of Michigan. That will continue. I do radio with Chris Kimball. I think he's doing fine. And I love doing that. That's like my live call-in show where we take questions from 
call, well, callers here. My call-in show was from viewers. And so that's really fun. I love talking to real humans, you know, talk to people. <laughs> I don't mean real humans. Is there well, such instead a thing of the as camera a, alone. You or mean. a faux human. I mean, really. But it's fun to find out what they're doing. And boy, it's particularly people who read Milk Street are doing very complicated things. Um, so I, I, Todd, again, I don't know what to say. I would say one thing that is thriving clearly is the internet. But that was true before. So a lot of people have made careers as bloggers, as influencers, um, you know, doing things on the internet as YouTubers having shows. And I imagine that is where people are going to thrive in the future. However, it's a very, very crowded field and it's hard to break out there and become different. That was even true years ago. God, about 10 years ago, I even took a class on blogging because I thought, oh, maybe that's a direction I'll go. But you know, I realized for t to do all that work every week, you know, t recording, you know, you shoot recipes at various different stages and you have to post, you know, three or four times to be vital and to really break out. It just seemed like so much work for so little return. Um, although some people get wealthy on it, but it, th that is few and far between from my understanding. Yeah, no, and I was just thinking about my kids who are much younger than than yours, and that they're the generation where everybody thinks um, they're going to be a YouTuber and wants to be a YouTuber, which is just that much more, I guess, inherent com competition because they're like literally growing up with like, well, this is of course what everyone would want to do. Why would you want to get an education when you can just go on YouTube and make money? Well, it's funny because that was true when I was on the Food Network. And I noticed that an awful lot of people were really, really, really nice to me. You know, when I'd go out to dinner or I'd meet them at an event, and I realized at the time I was quite aware it's because a lot of people were discovered on my show. Uh, it was one of the places where the Food Network found new talent. So everybody wanted to be my friend. And a lot of those people who wanted to be my friend really wanted to go right from oh, I like cooking at home to having their own TV show without doing any of the stuff in the middle, uh, doing any training or actually knowing what they were talking about. And as it turns out, and this is going to sound so bitter and awful, but it didn't really matter. You could be a star without really knowing how to cook. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly on television, it's become and it's been perpetuated a lot more about your charisma and your vibe and your look. And then they can hire an army of people who do know what they're doing to make it look like you do or you. The yeah, exactly. Do. Correct. Yes. But then that that's the whole debate of, of, you know, particularly where people get snobby about Food Network, which is, is it about food or is it about entertainment? And sometimes it intersects and sometimes it's not. And there's a place for all of it, really, right? But you then you wonder about what's going to endure and what's really going to hold long-term well, value for people. It, it, it's funny that you should bring that up because, yeah, that is absolutely true. And that was something that was raging when I was there. You know, is it entertainment or is it education? And, you know, for me, obviously it needed to be both, but I was education first. However, there is no greater master of both of those things than Julia Child. And yet, you know, even when I left the Food Network, which is in 2005, I think if Julia, as her young self, had gone to the Food Network and proposed a show, they wouldn't have touched her with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, no, I've done that intro and other things. She's too tall, not pretty enough, funny voice, doesn't meet any of their criteria, right? Right. No, not remotely. I mean, and didn't have the cleavage they were looking for at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... Uh, 
not to say the Food Network has done great things. You know, that when I left, I was very bitter. But now, in retrospect, I have to say, I really think they got a lot of America cooking and a lot of young people cooking. And I think that's fantastic. But, um, yeah, no, there's no greater. Julia was the best, and she endures, just as we said before. Exactly. So has watching Julia Child or Sarah Moulton brought you comfort during the lockdown? Who's been your mentor in the kitchen lately? Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know. After the break, Sarah's going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Sarah, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Well, I don't have a favorite one. I have so many. So I'm just going to share one that I think is very uh, appropriate for these times. When I worked with her on Julia Child and More Company, which was the public television show that we taped at uh, WGBH in Boston in 1979, we worked very oddly three days a week. I have no idea why. And I could only work two out of three because the other five, I was a chef at a restaurant. But we would develop the recipes as we went along. And the, some of them were quite elaborate, you know, gâteau de crepe, which had, you know, a, a layers of crepes and fillings, you know, it was mile high cake sort of thing. Or, um, you know, bon mot chocolat, you know, which we, it took us like 14 times to get right. But we would be developing the recipes as we were doing the show, which is crazy. However, whether we were developing recipes that day or actually recording the show, we would stop for lunch. And we had this woman on, we had many volunteers. Uh, there weren't that many um, actual paid professionals, uh, but we all loved each other and had fun. And we had a volunteer named Temi Hyde, whose jo- job it was to sort of set up lunch. And she's a very elegant lady. And uh, so from Newton, so she would uh, set up long tables, you know, long, you know, six foot tables, you know, two, two, two at a time, put tablecloths on them, set them with flatware and, you know, napkins and the whole nine yards. And then we would stop for lunch. We'd have a little aperitif, uh, chilled vermouth. And then we would sit down for lunch, and usually we ate what we were making, and we'd talk about it and taste it, or we'd sometimes get food brought in. And we would have wine with lunch. And we'd talk somewhat about the recipes, but we'd talk about other things. And it was really, really civilized. It was a real lunch, um, you know, probably an hour. And I have to say, though, that things did move a little bit slowly in the afternoons. And uh, in subsequent years, I think they dispensed with wine at lunch, although I imagine they still sit down and uh, sat down and had a nice lunch. So that was definitely Julia. She didn't just teach us about cooking. She taught us about culture and she taught us about dining, much like I'd mentioned earlier. And this was a message that this is an important part of your life. 
is not just to eat, but to dine. Um, and I think that's an amazing message and a very important one. And it's one of the reasons I'm so in love with French culture is they understand that, and Italian culture as well, European culture in general, but those two countries in particular. And I really hope that's something that we can learn. I'm just thinking about the production work I'm involved in, and everything is so cost and time driven, right? And maybe that's something we can learn from this slowdown, which is that has value in and of itself, even if obviously having a longer lunch costs the crew a lot more time. Well, good ideas come when you slow down. It's like for the longest time uh, as a freelancer, which I've been for many years, I wouldn't take weekends off. I just work every day. I felt like I needed to work every day, you know, because you're always worried about when your next job is going to come in or when you're going to make money. And then a very good friend of mine said, no, you absolutely have to take weekends off. So I started doing it only about three years ago. And it was very hard for me because I'm such a workaholic because I'm so worried about money. As it turns out, for various reasons, I'm not so worried anymore. But I, that's when I started really enjoying my time off and reading more books. And I started my painting. And then I'd go back on Monday so fresh with really better ideas about work. You can't work unless you have time off. I mean, you can't work as well. It's it's so important to slow down and refresh and relax, and then you can go back with a new energy. Well, let's hope that holds for everybody when we get closer to being through this pandemic. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Well, it's always fun to talk about Julia. It really does make me happy. She 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 was the funniest person, really, I ever do. Uh, but she was also a very warm and loving and nurturing person. So it's just nice to even think about her. That's so lovely. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and for listening. You can keep up with Sarah's cooking on her social feeds. It's at Sarah Moulton, S-A-R-A-M-O-U-L-T-O-N. She's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can even go to sarahmoulton.com for the latest about her television programs, books, and there are plenty of recipes you can practice at home right now. You just click on Sarah's weeknight meals, and that gives you a handy guide to where you can watch season nine of the show wherever you are. It's also available on YouTube. You can watch Dishing with Julia Child on PBS Passport, the PBS Living Channel on Amazon Prime Video, or check your local PBS listings. Episodes include Sarah, Jose Andres, Carla Hall, Vivian Howard, Jacques Pepin, Eric Repair, Marcus Samuelson, and Martha Stewart, as well as, of course, Julia. Keep up with us in our ongoing efforts to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>